I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 21, which is on page 744 if you're using your pew Bibles. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the other side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Like I say this over and over again when I'm preaching, but I cannot begin to stress how important context is when we're looking at Scripture. Context gives us parameters and boundaries. It gives us a setting for how things take place or took place. It really helps us understand. Now, yesterday was Corey's birthday. I won't tell you how old she is, but she's still young, vibrant. Uh, and I was down in uh, in the Seattle area for the North Pacific Conference since Thursday afternoon, and so uh, my my parents took the kids, and Corey got to come hang out with me on Friday, and we had a great evening. Went out to dinner Friday night, and uh, on Saturday morning we woke up and went to breakfast at Pike Place Market at Crepe de France. Anyone ever been there? Crepe de France, All right? McFarlands? No. Okay. You just like crepes. Now, Corey loves crepes, and uh, I guess I could have gone a number of places in Seattle to find good crepes. But context is important. The setting was important. See, Corey and I have a history of going to Crepe de France at Pike Place Market. In fact, next month, a little less than a month from now, on May 20th, we will celebrate the 15th anniversary of our meeting, of our first date together. Um, And I still remember those times when we would date 15 years ago, uh, and we would take walks in the Pike Place Market, and we would eat crepes at Crepe de France. So yesterday, as we're walking through the market in the morning, I'm bombarded with sights and smells and sounds that bring back an explosion of memories, right? Like just the flowers in the market when you see them all exploding up and the tulips are awesome right now. Uh, The street musicians reminded me of uh, when we used to, when we were dating, the real Spoon Man was 
listeners out there playing in front of the original Starbucks, right? Come on, anyone? Soundgarden? Right. Yeah, the real Spoon Man. So it brought me back to that dude. And then uh, the smell of fish at the fish market just made me think of when my dad used to take me fishing. And then I thought of the time when Corey and I were dating. We were walking through there. And I, I put my hand in a halibut. And I was like, Arr! And she wouldn't hold my hand the rest of the day. And I, I remember that. <laughs> I remember, you know, the, the, the head shops, and you smell the incense and the sandalwood. It just made me remember the times when we used to walk through the market and when she would hold my hand. And, of course, there's the crepes at Crepe de France. More than crepes, an experience. Because when we had the crepes yesterday morning, all wrapped up in that simple meal at the market, it was 15 years of relationship, of history, vitality. Setting and context means so much. Now, Nikki has just set the context for today's story. She's read the first 14 verses of John 21. And in this story, the disciples are fishing at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. Uh, and where they're fishing at the Sea of Galilee is the key, one of the keys. It's the setting to today's story. Before these guys met Jesus, they were fishermen. They fished. And for three years, as they followed Jesus, they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their livelihood, everything they knew to follow Jesus. Now, as you know, Easter just happened. Jesus died. And we've been exploring the last few weeks these resurrection appearances of Christ, coming back and meeting with the disciples. Jesus tells the disciples, hey, now that I'm resurrected from the dead, everything's changed. Not only are sins forgiven, but now there's a, just a new way of relating to God. Because through faith in Christ, now His Father can become our Father. And so Jesus tells the disciples, hey, go spread this good news all around. He commissions them. Time has passed, and the disciples just need to put food on the table. So, what do they do? They go fishing. They go fishing. And they fish all night, and they're not successful. So, this morning, sun's coming up, they're still on the water, it looks like they're coming in, and some guy on the shore yells, Hey, how you guys doing? Ah, oh, we haven't caught a thing. Try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. Yeah, right, that'll work. Like, we're professional fishermen. Okay, we'll throw it on the other side of the boat. This little net, 15 feet in diameter, was the typical throw net for the top. 153 large fish. And here's the miraculous thing, besides the fish... The net doesn't break. I mean, I've read up on these nets. 153 large fish in those types of nets would easily break the net. It's this miraculous catch of fish. Now, do you remember what happened the last time the disciples and Jesus were at the Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias? Last time they were there, there were 5,000 hungry people on the shore. All they had were five loaves and two fish. And Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you guys figure it out. And they start to think in their human mind, 
How am I going to buy enough food? We don't have enough money. We wouldn't have a, a year's salary it would take to buy enough food for these people. How are we going to do this? And remember, Jesus takes care of it. He just simply prays and He multiplies the food so that there's an abundance of food. There's leftovers. In fact, there's so much left over, um, there's 12 baskets full. And this, is, this is the kind of God that Jesus is. He, he can manipulate nature. Nature is not a thing for Him. Like, remember, He thought it up. Uh, so at the wedding at Cana, when they run out of wine, He shows that He's a God of abundance. He doesn't just provide a few more bottles of wine, but over a hundred gallons of wine. Don't you want Jesus at your next party? I mean, this, this is extravagant, abundant. The last time Jesus and the disciples were at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, he shows his mastery over nature. Now, one of the disciples, probably John, is starting to put the pieces together. Wait a minute. We're at the Sea of Galilee again. I remember the feeding of the 5,000. Now I'm looking at this net full of 153 fish. The net's not breaking. It's a record-setting catch. And he just it clicks for him. He says, it's the Lord. And Peter, who's in his skivvies, because uh, he's fishing, he, he looks, he puts his robe on, he jumps in the water, he starts to swim over to Jesus. Of course, he leaves the other guys to do all the work. That's Peter. Uh, and Peter gets to shore. He runs up and Jesus is already cooking something over the fire. He's already cooking fish, and he's already cooking bread. Jesus doesn't necessarily need what we have to accomplish his will. But then he does something really cool. He invites the disciples to bring some of their catch, which he provided, to join on the fire. I, I, I can tie up these ends right now. I'm going to leave them hanging. Because now this is going to cast us into today's story. Listen to this. John 21, 15-25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. It's a weak word. He was torn up inside. Peter was deeply grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and you used to walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who he also leaned on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? What about him? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren, 
that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But only, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? Now this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things what Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Risen Jesus, I thank you for this incredible word of forgiveness and restoration. I pray that you would open us up in places that we have closed off. That we could receive the medicine of forgiveness this evening. And that we would be restored and believe that we are sent by You. Lord, conform us to Your will this evening. Amen. Context, setting, so important. There at the Sea of Galilee where He had done these signs and wonders before, He invites the disciples to bring their fish that He provided to share for breakfast. And what kind of fire is He cooking on? Yell it out now. I know it's on the tip of somebody's tongue. Charcoal fire, right? We talked about this several weeks ago. An anthrakian. That's the Greek word for charcoal fire. Anthrakian. You know that word occurs two times in the New Testament. You know where they are? Here and in John 18. You may recall that in John 18, that's the, the story where Jesus is arrested, falsely accused. Now, before Jesus is arrested, there's this scene with Peter. And Peter says, Lord, I am never going to leave you. Even if I have to die with you, I will be at your side. Well, Jesus is arrested. And Peter is warming himself at an anthracian, a charcoal fire. Charcoal fire, you guys cook with briquettes, it's a very distinct smell. He's smelling this, he's warming himself, and somebody comes up to him as Jesus is in the courtyard within earshot, being falsely accused. Somebody comes up to Peter and says, Hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? He denies it. He denies it three times. And we know that in Luke's Gospel, at the third time that Peter denied being a disciple of Jesus, Jesus and his eyes meet. And he breaks down and starts crying and he flees. I mean, how would that make you feel? Just like the Pike Place Market has unique sights and smells and bring back memories to me, like I mentioned earlier, I imagine that Peter is overwhelmed by memory and feelings now that he is making eye contact with Jesus again around a what? A charcoal fire with a distinct smell. In fact, I think just like last week's story with Thomas, I think, I think that takes place just for Thomas. I think Jesus comes back to, to deal with some of Thomas' doubts. I think this story is Jesus dealing with what Peter needs. And I think Peter needs restoring. Now, before we make that assumption, why does Peter need restoring? He, of all the disciples, saw the empty tomb. He was at the house when Jesus first showed up, like teleporting himself through the walls. 
He saw Jesus in His resurrected body. Peter was there to receive the Holy Spirit from Jesus Himself. Peter was there to receive the commission to go into all the world and to tell people about the forgiveness of sin through Jesus. Peter knew of all people that we have resurrection life to look forward to. So why? Why does Peter need a special visit? Because I think Peter's disqualified himself. He can't shake the inside sense that he has failed his master so deeply that there's no way he can really get on with life. He can't forgive himself and he can't move on from the past. You know, Jesus can say... You're forgiven, Peter. You're forgiven, Peter, over and over again. But if it doesn't sink in, if Peter doesn't really own it and believe it, it's not going to stick. And I think you all know that from experience. In fact, why does Peter need a special visit? For the same reason you and I do. For those of you who have been participating in worship here at Lettered Streets for a while, how many times have you heard me talk about the good news, about forgiveness of sin and new life? In fact, you should tell me if there's a Sunday you don't hear about that because I'm not doing my job well. So you hear about it a lot. Now, how many of us, me included, are living into that new life on a consistent basis? Shame-free, bold, What's holding us back from being even more engaged in the world? Even more self-giving? Now sin, of course, and selfishness, sure, I mean, that's, that's all part of it. But if you've forgiven, been forgiven for those things, then what's holding us back? I think the reason is, deep down, we've kind of disqualified ourselves from certain things. We think, surely Jesus can't forgive that thing I did. Surely Jesus can forgive everything but that thing I didn't do. Surely Jesus has got everybody else covered except for me and the problems that I still have. So there's Peter around a charcoal fire. Failure fresh in his mind. And maybe he's hoping that Jesus will just pat him on the back and say, It's alright, Peter. I'm Jesus. It's okay. Just forget about it. But thankfully, Jesus wants so much more for Peter than to just forget about it. He wants Peter to be healed from this disaster in his past. So he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And at at face value, this is a really weird question. What are these things, or these things that he's talking about? Is it the disciples or something else? Is it, do you love me more than these other disciples? I mean, wouldn't that be a weird question for Jesus to ask? That could be what he's saying. But I think the, the setting suggests... That Jesus is probably talking about, do you love me more than these fishing boats, these nets, this life? Do you love me more than what you're comfortable with? Do you love me enough to leave this benign lifestyle that you, you find comfort in? More than the life than you know. Do you love me more than the life that is safe? 
Simon says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, tend my lambs. Again, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And notice that Jesus is calling Peter Simon, son of John. When Jesus first met Simon, way back in the first chapter, he gave him a nickname. He said, you're going to be called Cephas, which means rock. Peter, which means rock. But Peter was anything but a rock when he denied Jesus. So as part of the healing process, Jesus brings him back in time to where he's just Simon, son of John. Peter replies, Yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's been a lot made of the Greek words uh, for love in this section of, of John. There are multiple ways of saying love in Greek. And there's two ways that they say it here, phileo and agape. And frankly, John uses these words interchangeably throughout his gospel. It's kind of like, I don't know if you're in English class or you're writing a letter or an email, and you keep using the same word over and over again, and so just for style or impact, you pull out a thesaurus so you can find a different way of saying the same thing. That's what a lot of scholars think is happening here. There's not a lot made of the different uses of the word love, but it's simply, do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I'm a third time. Do you love me? Of course, he asks him three times because Peter denied him three times. He's giving Peter space to think, to reopen the wound so that the healing ointment of forgiveness won't just smear over old scars but gets into the wound and does its healing. Jesus is doing soul surgery. And it's painful. And the text says that Peter was deeply grieved. I mean, this is, the Greek word here is this, means he's torn up inside. Because Jesus is really getting to this nerve. Hey, do you love me? First time Peter could just, off the top of his head, say, yeah, I love you. He's sitting around smelling that fire again. Remembering the pain of the denial. No, no, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. Time goes on. A third time, three denials, three questions. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus replies, Tend my sheep. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say, You're forgiven. Peter wouldn't have believed it anyway. You know how it is. It's hard to believe you're really forgiven. It's hard to believe you're really forgiven sometimes. And even if you believe it in your head, you may still carry about this debilitating shame, either from a past event or maybe it's something in your life that you keep doing, you're you're stuck in, and you kind of disqualify yourself from being a real follower of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? How does he show Peter how forgiven he really is? Well, he does two things. First of all, what we've been talking about, he takes Peter on a journey. He revisits the past. He opens the wound and he takes time with it. 
And this is a little different topic, but Simple Psychology 101 says that every time you're insulted, it takes eight words of positive affirmation to negate that insult. So think about that when you're, when you're with your kids or your friends. and Eight times to negate the one bad thing. Now, Jesus is taking His time with Peter because you can't just have done something so grievous and say, don't worry about it. You're forgiven. I mean, th- that won't work on us. We're too complex and we doubt ourselves too much. So Jesus takes His time with Peter, number one. And number two, and this is the key, He trusts Peter by giving him responsibility. Last week, of course, this text is fresh on my mind because I'm getting ready to preach it and I'm just kind of living in it. We're eating dinner and if you've been to our house, you know our dining room is kind of in a weird spot. It goes kitchen, living room, take a left, dining room. So the point being, in order to get your plates and your food from the kitchen to the dining room, you have to go to the living room. Well, Sophia, four years old, she's getting really good at cleaning her plate and setting the table. This particular dinner, she wants to uh, she wants to do more than usual. She wants to take one of the serving dishes that still had quite a few leftovers on it. All right, but be careful. She's doing really well with this heavy plate, lots of food on it. Gets to the middle of the living room and gets distracted by the cat. Cat. Yeah. You know what happens? All over the rug. All over the rug. She gets really upset. Oh no! So I run over. And I'm frustrated. But I'm proud that she wanted to help. And I say, don't worry, honey. We'll clean it up. Corey got a rag, got some water. We were getting it all cleaned up. And I'm so tempted just to say, go, just get your silverware in your cup and Daddy will take care of this. And I want you to know that 99% of the time that's my problem is I do do that. But this text was fresh in my head and I caught myself for once. I said, it's okay, honey. You want to try again? She said, yeah, Dad. She was focused because it was fresh in her mind too. She brings it over to the counter and then she dropped it in the sink and I thought it was going to break. But anyway, she got it, she got it to the... She got it even to the sink. But what does it tell Sophia... The 99% of the time when I'm bad dad, what does it tell her when I say, you're forgiven, now go do something else that you can handle. Go do the simple silverware stuff. I'll do all the hard things. You can't do it right. I've got the power. You don't. Don't even try next time. Why don't you just stick with clearing your own plate and the silverware because that's all you're good at. Peter wasn't just forgiven. Jesus could have said, it's okay, Peter. Just stick with fishing. You're kind of a loser. Peter is forgiven and restored. And that's what Jesus wants to do for all of us. Not just forgive. And I say that, oh man, please don't hear me say, just forgiveness. I mean, that's a huge gift. But it's not something to live for. You ever think about that? Forgiveness is a great gift. But it's not something to live for. Jesus wants to restore us. And when we know in the deep core of ourselves that we're forgiven, we can live lives of joy. And that means lives of meaning. Jesus calls us, you and I, to do great things. Peter was a fisherman who denied Jesus three times. And Jesus calls Peter to tend his flock. 
In John's Gospel, chapter 10, it talks about how Jesus is the good shepherd. And now he's basically deputizing Peter, saying, now you, fisherman who's not very educated, who's brash and swims away from your friends and makes them do all the work, who denied me three times, you, tend my flock. And He calls you and me to join this redemptive plan too. So what does it look like for our lives? And I think that question cannot be answered from this position. Because I think it's going to look different for every single person. Jesus told Peter he was going to end up fulfilling his promise to Jesus. He was going to die. In fact, tradition says that Peter's arms were stretched out. And that the Romans captured him. And they crucified him. And Peter said, I am not worthy to die the same as my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. You don't die as fast when that happens. It would be a horrible, horrible thing to have happen. In fact, in Rome, Corey and I visited uh, the prison cell where there's still the iron shackles, the iron um, U-bolts in the, in the wall. That's supposedly where they had held Peter. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's dated the right time. Couldn't imagine it. So when Peter hears about this prediction of his future, you know, he's going to get his arms stretched out, he's going to die, he looks at John, so what about him? What's his calling? And Jesus basically says, this is the Chris International Version, none of your business. None of your business. If I want him to live forever, what's that to you? Of course, John didn't live forever. He was one of the few original disciples who didn't get murdered for his faith, but he did get arrested and exiled to, well, to a Mediterranean island. That's kind of nice. I'm sure he didn't have my ties, but it's better than a crucifixion. But John was called to something different. And all throughout John's Gospel, we're seeing that he's a little more, I don't know, with it, intuitive. He sees what Jesus is doing. And so, because he didn't get killed early on, he, he got to write this book so that we could know this stuff. He also wrote the book of Revelation and probably had his hand in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well in the New Testament. The point is, don't compare yourself with other people. Either get prideful or disappointed. That's the way I see it. Either get prideful or disappointed. We're all part of the same big story of God's redemptive plan to save the world. And we need each other to be different. Not just so that this isn't boring, but because we all have different gifts and experiences and abilities. We can't all do the same things and be the same things. Jesus says, don't worry about Him. You follow Me. Now, consider this. You and I are made in God's image. Don't forget that. Because we choose to sin. We rebel. We're broken image bearers. We do not quite look like God, do we, in our character. Jesus died and was resurrected not only to forgive you, but to call you to follow. To invite you and I to participate in the most exciting and meaningful adventure you could have. And that's God's rescue mission to the world. You're part of that. 
So what's holding you back? What's holding you back from fully following Jesus? Jesus brought Peter back to a charcoal fire, back to his wounds, in order to heal him. This is a question that needs to be answered throughout the week, maybe throughout your life. But I'm going to leave it with you. Where might Jesus need to take you? What's your equivalent of the charcoal fire? And give us a moment just to think about that.